Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Are we, are we rolling, Ian? We are. Great. Well, look, um, welcome to another edition of Word in Your Ear. Thanks very much for coming. Now, if you'd mentioned EMI Records a few years back, most people thought, and they still do, actually, to be fair, they thought of, uh, of George Martin, The Beatles, The Stones, uh, The Floyd, Bowie, Kate Bush, Pet Shop Boys, Blur, Radiohead, an empire that seemed to tower over its rival, uh, rival labels in terms of folklore and legend, a place of utter fabulousness and the beating heart, let's be honest, of the music industry. So it was pretty strange in 2007 when a bunch of uh, venture capitalists who'd made a large amount of money installing toilets on German motorways took over EMI and were quoted as saying, we look for the worst business we can find in the most challenged sector and we're hoping EMI is as bad as we think it is. Now, the fallout from this deal, as you may remember, was catastrophic. And a lot of those acts jumped ship, 21st century uh, economics colliding with old-school creativity. And it was tragic, actually. But, of course, it was grippingly entertaining. (laughs) And we have with us the author of a terrific book about this, which has just come out. It's called The Final Days of EMI, The Selling of the Pig. Please welcome Eamon Ford. (laughs) Splendid. So, Eamon, firstly, you've got to fill us in on your qualification. Very few people are, are qualified to write about the music industry, but you actually are a, a, a doctor or a PhD. I, I am. This is a, th- a thing I don't uh, talk about much. It's like my charity work. I, t- I tend to keep it quiet. <laughs> uh, no, I came... My background was academia. I, so I spent the 90s either studying or working in academia, and then I moved to London in 98 to do a PhD on the sociology of the music press, believe it or not. Yes, back in those days, you could get grants to do that kind of thing. And I interviewed you for it. You uh, did, I remember. When you were at EMAP all those years ago. That's right. And I was writing at a time just when this strange thing called the internet was starting to impact on, the, on print media. And people were going, oh, it's a, it's a novelty, it'll, it'll go away. And how wrong they were. So, uh, yeah, so I was writing about... Uh, an industry at a time of great upheaval through digital, and then I wrote a book about a different industry uh, uh, in a time of great upheaval. And you wrote digital. a piece, in fact, for Word magazine, didn't I you? Have. I have. Uh, uh, from my archives. Commissioned so, by us. Yeah. When was that? So what? this came out September 2011, so obviously the cover would would date that, because obviously Amy Winehouse had just yeah. passed away, so uh, here it is in... Uh, where is the whole thing? A nice picture of uh, Guy Hanser with uh, right. some TNT and what looks like Dak from, or Ant from Ant and Dak, uh, but it, I think it's supposed to be Robbie Williams there. <laughs> Peeking behind Mick Jagger, Tom York, and look at that. Pages and pages and pages that you let me write about this thing. We well, did. And, and, it, we did. and it developed into, into, into a book. We used to regard Eamon as, uh, as kind of literally Dr. Rock, didn't we? When yeah. It, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And particularly when, when anything was called upon to, to write about anything about the music business, send Eamon, because <laughs> there's a great truth about rock writers is that they're green as grass when it comes to anything to do with the business. Is that true? 
I don't know. I was never. I was never really a quote-unquote music writer in that. I didn't. Oh, really... you're being very modest here because most rock writers are very good. They can give you a left to right on any member, any lineup of the Cure. <laughs> but if they, if they want, to, you know, if you ask them who owns EMI Records, yeah. what, what the hierarchy yeah. is, they have the faintest idea. Yeah, I was never. I, I, I did bits and pieces for Weird. I interviewed the old pop star and did the old album review, but I wasn't very good at it. And I thought that the people were infinitely more qualified. So I said, I'm going to double down and have a niche that is mine. That's terribly boring to people from the outside but i will try and make it my own so but for this yeah. for this feature in in, in the word you mm-hmm. you got to talk to guy hands yes who was the guy at the center of this story yeah and from that with obviously an enormous amount of additional work on on subsequent events what happened in the in the sad story of emi yeah that went into this book so selling the pig yeah what's the idea there what, why is it called that? Or yes. what, what's the point of the book? No, no. Well, I hope you'll talk about what's the point of the book. <laughs> that, it's well, a big, where, Pink where, Floyd, presumably. No, not at all. There's, oh, right, okay. uh, it's a tiny, tiny reference because uh, Terra Firma, when they bought EMI, they borrowed uh, $2.6 billion from Citigroup. But Citigroup were also acting on behalf of EMI to sell it. So there's this weird... This goes into... There's a whole thing about the court case about where uh, Terra Firma misled or not. But the idea was that Citigroup had been trying to sell EMI for about 10 years and just couldn't through either people didn't think it was a good enough company to buy or regulatory issues trying to merge with other music companies. And part of Tara Firma's argument in their deposition was that uh, Citigroup felt that EMI was a bad company to buy. So they used to refer to it as a cancer patient going through chemotherapy. They called it the PAP. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. And then the day the deal went through with Terra Firma, someone on the seal side of uh, Terra, uh, of Citigroup emailed another person there and said, congratulations, I see you've finally sold the pig. So he used to refer to EMI as the pig because they just thought it was a terrible, terrible company. So nothing to do with the Pink Floyd inflatable. Oh, okay, but when I was reading the court depositions, I, I remember vividly, because that, that was used in Guy Hand's uh, uh, deposition, and I remember underlining it in highlighter and wrote beside it, chapter title, question mark, and then just immediately scored it out and wrote book title in block caps, underlined it eight yeah. times, <laughs> exclamation mark. Well, so us- it was going to be called Selling the Pig the final days of EMI, but then obviously the publishers in their wisdom said, you've got to have EMI in the first right. half. Right. Yeah, yeah. Because right. people, us- are, people us- think it's about animal husbandry or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We need a, just a very brief sum up, a summary of, 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 of EMI, the kind of history of EMI. I mean, it was, it was you know... That's was how was, I knew EMI It was known as, as the greatest recording organisation in the world, that was that was what they had on their logo. And do what it was for yeah, a while. Yeah. So tell us the story of EMI quickly. Starts in the nineteen oh thirties. Well, well, the kind of the, 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 the long history goes way back to the late eighteen hundreds. The, the various configurations of the company that came through, but obviously in the thirties onwards, it was kind of hardware. It was doing radar technology, hospital technology, and then in the fifties, obviously it had been doing uh, recorded music. Uh, but it did the goons and stuff like that, and that's obviously where George Martin came in, and then obviously at the end of 1962, they sign uh, a little-known band called The Beatles. Yeah. But people kind of forget, they go, they, they, there's that great quote from Dacca about Mr Epstein, rock and roll bands are on the way out. And EMI was basically the last resort for The Beatles. They'd been turned Definitely. on by, by everybody. So yeah. EMI was very much the poor relation in the industry. And then, obviously, by the end of 1963, 1964, it was the preeminent company in the world, and then it was just on fire. But it was also, like a lot, a lot of uh, British companies of those days, it was kind of followed the empire, didn't it, in lots of ways? It had yeah. you know, outposts in Australia and Africa and yeah. uh, the United States and so forth. It was a very strong well, part wasn't of that when, when structure. Ma- when McCartney did Band on the Run, wasn't it? Wasn't that an, an old EMI studio? It was, it was in, in Africa. still in use as an EMI yeah, yeah. studio in, in Lagos. Yeah, yeah. so didn't he look at some map of where they had studios yeah, and go, right. where, where can we go? And they went, we've got a studio there. He went, all right, I'll go there. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, he wouldn't go back to India because he'd had that time there in the, you know... Yeah. The, and he didn't have Ringo to bring over a suitcase full of big yeah, yeah. So, you know, that was, that was the great uh, organisation that I kind of grew up with. And, uh, but eventually it turns into... <laughs> you know, the one one uh, interpretation of EMI is every mistake imaginable. Or, now, or, or, or every from? man for himself was another one. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, it was it was because well there, there, there was a sense that EMI was brilliant, but it was also slightly shambolic. It wasn't as polished as some of the other 
got a record company. And in many ways, that was its charm, that it didn't feel... It was a big record company, but it didn't feel like a big record company. And obviously that meant that it wasn't perhaps as business efficient as it could be but it was still it was still for a period it was making a phenomenal amount of money and I think that was obviously slightly self-effacing thing that EMI was the kind of the shambolic company that that still managed to succeed right right and I think that was the other thing that people people were drawn to EMI as employees because you tended to stay there it was like the BBC it was like the, it was like the civil service for the music industry and when you went there you stayed there, and you would hear stories of people who were being regularly taken out by the head of the company. So the guy who was, who was obviously running the UK in those kind of final years before Terra Firma came in, Tony Wadsworth, would be taking people out for long service dinners. So these people who'd done 25, 30, 40 years in the company, well, Tony started in the company in the early 80s as well. So these right. people were lifers because they bought into the idea of EMI because it felt like a family I know certainly as a business journalist when I was going around in the early 2000s going around to record companies that was the one that if somebody said would you like to write work for a record company we go well probably only EMI because it, it felt like a label it was just, so it, it felt like a big indie rather than a major label it didn't feel like this faceless behemoth there was something I don't know honest and real about it those are awful platitudes but there was there, there was just something good about the company you felt that there was a real spirit there that perhaps some of the other record companies that's lacked. absolutely true because it had a, a real a real kind of cultural element to it you felt yeah. it was all part of some same sort of folklore you know kate bush and the floyd and, and yeah uh, i gonna say because it was always just identified with kind of british talent wasn't it still that's that's that, what you thought of when you thought of emi well that was its blessing and its curse because obviously the, the big problem for me for emi was uh, it just didn't sign and break u.s artists it really Really, really struggled. So in the 60s and 70s and 80s, that was fine. But then when kind of hip-hop became kind of the dominant genre from, I guess, the early 90s onward, DMI was just on the back foot. Like, uh, all the other majors were signing up, all this phenomenal... American talent and EMI just was not in the race at all. So obviously, if, you're, if you've missed out on the biggest genre in the world for uh, consecutive years, you're kind of in trouble. That, so that was always EMI's problem was it was brilliant in the UK and Europe and it was just terrible in the States. It could break UK artists yeah. in the States. It couldn't find and develop and break US artists globally. Now, obviously, signing the Beatles was an extraordinary stroke of... Good fortune. Yeah. But do you, do you think possibly in the long run it held them back? I don't think so because it gave them the money to take punts on things because there's, the, there's that, that off-quoted figure about the record industry or the major label industry that 90% of artists uh, lose money and 10% that do make a phenomenal yeah, amount yeah. of money. And if you've got big, heavy hitters... You can you can do a spread bet. You can sign interest in artists. And obviously, there's a culture tied to labels as well. So the, the fact that Parlophone was the label that the Beatles were signed to, that was a thing that Neil Tennant said when he signed, yep. that they wanted to be signed to the Beatles yep. label. Same thing uh, when Radiohead signed, they wanted to be on Parlophone because it was the Beatles label. And then yep. when Coldplay signed to Parlophone, they wanted to be on there because it was Radiohead's label and stuff like that. So... The, the label kind of became a culture in the same way that Electra did or... Uh, well, CBS with Bob Dylan. Yeah. It? yeah. So it was just these were calling cards. We're going, we're the label that has the Beatles. And that means, that means something to artists. We're looking at the famous picture here of the Beatles looking over the staircase at Manchester Square, the old EMI headquarters where they, they took a picture yeah. for their first album and also took a picture many years later for, you know, uh, for the Blue and the Red, red Blue album. Out. And that, but when EMI moved to Brook Green in Hammersmith, mm -hmm. am I right in thinking they took that staircase out? They did. And took it with them? It, the staircase for a while was in uh, the window that, of Wrights Lane, which was where the global headquarters were, which is now where Warner uh, Music is. And so they had that staircase and reception, and then they had sets of pictures so you had the Beatles for the Red Album the Blue Album and then the Sex Pistols recreated right. that image recreated and then it, yeah. Blue um, recreated Blue. that image so they had all of those images stacked on top of yeah. each other but yeah the, 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 that, that balcony was there 
in, yeah. in reception. Yeah, yeah. But it's Which fair is an old smash hit. Old smash hit. Literally in reception, yeah. But it, it's fair to say that um, the last great hurrah was when Ken and Nancy Berry, I think, were in charge. And, well, and you get these stories in your book about this amazing expenditure. You know, huge amounts of profligate cash being chucked yeah. around the place. They signed uh, Mariah Carey, I think, for a rumoured 69 million for four albums. When the yeah. first album didn't sell, they gave her a further 29 million to go away. Well, I mean, it's yeah. astonishing. And there's wonderful stories, little tiny details about people sending cabs out to pick up their dry cleaning. And a cab <laughs> is sent out at one point to get a banana for somebody. So yeah. you, can, you can understand that, 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 that although they're signing these great acts, they're still the business element is a little bit loose. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, well, there was money just washing through the industry. I think. So yeah. when, when are we talking? And this, yeah. Cam and Nancy were uh, very much the 90s. Cam, Kim, Cam Barry came over to run Virgin Records in America in yeah. the mid-80s, and then EMI bought Virgin in 92, 93, right. I yeah. think. Uh, and then it was, it was kind of that era. So you've got... Uh, Virgin was a massive label. Uh, there was money, huge amounts of money with the CD boom, just sloshing through the industry. So all the excesses of the record industry yeah. really were in the 90s, and they were kind of at the absolute peak it's of It's worth that. making this point, isn't it? Because people often think of the 70s as being the kind of Roman days of excess no. in the music business. No. Not at all, were they? No, not at all. Well, Because there was so much money, because obviously uh, a CD... What, 15 pounds or yeah, whatever. yeah. Uh, obviously, that slightly declined, but I think, like, I, I vividly remember buying CDs for like 12, 13 quid. Yeah, and, yeah. like, if you got a CD for a tenner in the 90s, that was deemed a bargain. Yeah, well, but yeah. the so profit on that was phenomenal. And also, the, the artists were generally getting terrible royalties on that because it yeah. was deemed a development format. So, yeah. But also, we were in the music magazine market at the time, which was benefiting out of this enormously because oh, all God, these yeah. things were, were backed up because they could afford to spend huge amounts of money on advertising. Yeah. Because they were charging so much for the product. And, yeah, and also, was, people were re releasing back catalogues. You were getting copies of Moondance by Van Morrison you'd kind of forgotten about, reissued on CD, and that reactivated your interest well, in well, nostalgia. Well, yeah, well, and bought the, magazines. Well, that was the thing. You were, it, was, it was double bubble, as, as Del Boy would say. You were, yeah. you, were, you were shifting loads of frontline stuff and you were able to repress stuff uh, again that had never yeah. been made available because in the 70s and 80s catalogue yeah. was, you bought it in second-hand shops. Stuff yeah, yeah, yeah. wasn't repressed. So you didn't the- get anniversary reissues yeah. or remastered editions. And these, these became very modern inventions in the 90s because they had the technology for yeah. them. So in the 90s, everybody's living high on the hog. Yeah. Another pig reference. Think, <laughs> thinking it will go on forever. When do yeah. things start to? When do people start to notice that they won't go on forever? Well, it's coming up to the twentieth anniversary this June. Uh, Napster was basically the thing that pulled the rug from under everybody's feet. Uh, so a little bit of software developed well, in uh, developed in uh, Sean Fanning's dorm room in uh, Boston. Uh, I think it was Boston he was studying. And it didn't really kind of kick in until about 2000. But then after that, it was just suddenly everything started to fall apart. Kind of 2000 was probably the absolute peak of the industry. And then from 2001 onwards, you saw this noticeable decline. Every year, the IFPI, which is the international organisation that reports uh, record sales for the record business, you would start to see... A, a decline, and then it started to become a du- double-digit decline every year, and that lasted for 14 years. Well, so. it's, it's the speed of these changes that your book deals with. It, it, yeah. It, you know, that, that's the thing that nobody predicted. They thought they would be changed, but they wouldn't happen that fast. Well, the problem, like, lots of people will go, oh, well, the, the music industry is asleep at the wheel in digital. They weren't, because no. certainly, and if we talk about EMI, they were actually pioneers because they did the first paid download of a single for Duran Duran in, like, 1997, and they did Bowie's album, Ours, which came out on download a couple of weeks before the CD. So they were experimenting. It was a problem that suddenly a thing came along and went, it's free. That was the bit that kind of pulled the rug from under everybody's feet. It wasn't digital technology, it was price. I also, once, once people start getting something for free, they, they just find it very, very hard to pay for it, didn't they? Well, yeah. And like, and, 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 my own children, I used to beg them. I'd say, look, I know you've nicked that illegally, but go out and buy the record. They'd go, well, why? But it's a generational yeah. thing. We probably yeah. feel residual guilt because we were used to paying for stuff and, you, yeah, and, yeah. and you feel that something had a value. But then if you are of a generation who is discovering music at the same time that yeah. they're discovering Napster or LimeWire or Nutella or whatever kind of came in the wake... 
your starting point is free. Yeah. So you've got to move them up as consumers. So they're either paying for their time through advertising or you have to find some way to upsell them to some kind of subscription. Yeah. But what were the other threats? Because, you know, Tony Wadsworth was in charge, and he'd got, I mean, they were very strong commercial groups. There was Blur, there was later, there was Gorillaz, there, yeah. uh, there was Nora Jones, there was Kylie Minogue, there was um, Lily Allen, Coldplay. They were in a really strong position. But all sorts of threats. I mean, various major labels were merging. Yeah. And presumably there was the threat of 360-degree um, deals being made. Well, well, because well, the 360 deals were kind of a lifeline at that point because... Although the, the notion of a 360 deal wasn't new because Motown were basically doing 360 deals or multiple... Just, take, just explain what that is. Right, OK, so a record company traditionally would have signed an artist for uh, uh, exclusive recording rights. Yeah. So you record for them, uh, publishing, we go for the music, so for the songwriters, that'd be something different. And then there's the live side, there's the merchandise, all of these other ways that artists make money. So in the old days, you would just be signing an exclusive recording deal. So the... Uh, uh, the record labels would pay for tour support to get the band out there because they knew it would sell CDs. But then when the, when the CD market started to cl- decline, obviously live and other areas, synchronisation and brand endorsements and all of these things became part of the way that artists kind of survive and make money. So record companies were going, hmm... The bit that's fallen apart is the bit that we've kind of strapped ourselves yeah, we'd, to. Yeah, we'd like to cut your and, merchandise. And it's it's the highest risk bit as well. Yeah. So uh, should we kind of contractually get a cut of this? So they started to introduce what they called multiple rights deals, or 360 deals would be the record company gets a share of every revenue stream that the artists generate. Generally, they end up with what they call 270 deals, which was everything excluding publishing, but that was a, a contractual thing. But EMI were doing those kind of deals, the, the, the famous or infamous Robbie Williams deal from the early 2000s, because yeah. that because they had to re-sign him. They'd broken him. Like, that first album was dying until Angels came out. It was like a year and a bit before he actually was a hit for them. Uh, and he was absolutely at the height of his sales, so it would have been a really bad thing for EMI to lose him, symbolically. So they had to come up with this deal, so they came up with uh, a multiple rights deal. They set up this joint group, or this uh, uh, pot called In Good Company, where it was EMI and uh, Robbie Williams and his management were kind of overseeing this, and all the money would go in, and then it would all be kind of caught, divvied up between them. And it was, people say, oh, it was this 80 million quid deal. Nobody knows exactly what it was, but he didn't get 80 million quid up front. It would have been in increments, so based on targets and stuff like yeah. that. But I certainly haven't spoken to people on both sides of that deal. But, uh, but he did go around that, town going, I'm richer than I ever dreamed I would be. Yes, I'm richer with my wildest dreams, yeah. I think. Uh, but that deal uh, proved to be profitable for all of them. I think they both said that they were happy with it. Uh, they might have tinkered at the sides of it, but he was doing massive, massive kind of uh, stadium tours and stuff like that. He was generating a huge amount of money. Uh, and that, made, that, that worked for them, and it actually... It kind of saved EMI in the sense that they'd actually managed to hold on to their biggest artist at that point, at the point where they could have gone anywhere. They could have gone on their own, which is obviously increasingly an option that artists can do today. So tell us a little bit about the, the kind of the culture of a record company generally, you know, because they're, um, you know, people often talk about them as being very profligate and full of kind of dreamers or swindlers or <laughs> God knows what, you know. What are the strengths and weaknesses, according to... You know, you spent a lot of time I think, with well, them looking out of the work. Yeah, well, I think, obviously, there, there is a, a kind of... Some people get paid a huge amount of money, but most people at record companies don't get paid that well. If you're in that kind of top strat of this super executive, if you're on the fifth floor or whatever, you'll get paid a lot. But all, most other people don't get a huge amount of money. They don't have profit shares. They're in it, I know it sounds an awful cheesy thing to say, but they're genuinely in it for the music. They want to work with artists. But actually having that machine around you is incredibly important. So whether or not that is they've got the expertise to kind of pitch you to the press or get you on radio or increasingly get your music on Spotify playlists or whatever, or sort out these branding deals. They've kind of got expertise and they've got knowledge and they've got an understanding of where the market's going. 
And yeah, you can do a lot of stuff on your own, but you do need a really, really good team so, around you. People often talk about rather derisively about the suits in record companies. Yeah, I don't think. Well, there was, there was a, a bit in the book where uh, all the terra firma people started to come in when they bought EMI. And these uh, these drones came in, and they were all wearing suits because nobody at EMI wore suits. So then there was one guy, uh, Ashley Unwin, who people used to refer to as he was the one who went native because he decided that he was going to be a rock and roller. So he was wearing jeans and five hundred quid designer leather jackets and getting it just slightly wrong. Right, right. But nobody, I think, and trying I, to organise meet and greet so he could, could yeah, actually yeah, meet um, the uh, stones or whatever. Yeah, it, yeah. And like most people at. AMI, unless it was like the super, super group level, I never saw anybody wearing suits. It wasn't like, I don't know, they were just dressed like whether us. They wear, whether they wear suits or not. Yeah, they, yeah. They, they, <clears throat> I think it's very important to make the point that you've made that most people you meet at record companies really like music. No, they, they, they genuinely really do. Care about yeah. Because if they were driven by money, they would work somewhere else. Yeah, absolutely. They There's would work far in, easier ways to do Yeah, it. they would work in private equity. Yeah, and now, now does this also extend to, you know, their kind of general policy? Because when Terra Firma get in there, they realise that, as you've said, most of the acts don't make any money. Yeah. And they just carry on with them because, well, we signed them. We've got to, you know, we, we owe them three albums or whatever, you know. Well, they, they dropped a lot of acts straight out of the gates. They obviously, they looked at acts at, who were at the development stage and just went, nah, not happening, damn it. Right, yeah, yeah. So there was like a, there was a, there was blood on the carpet right from the start. But also the, you, you talk about them applying a completely different way of, 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 of a kind of product way of looking at these bands. They try and work out what the brand essence of yes. Laura Marling is. <laughs> you know, what is her brand? There's a brilliant bit where I think Lenny Kravitz appears on Saturday Night Live and his sales go up 6% afterwards. Yeah. And then Coldplay appear on, on Saturday Night Live and their sales go up 17%. They say, how, how could that happen? Surely yeah. it's just an amount that surely they must all go up the same. They can't differentiate between the appeal of one group and another. And then somebody sort of says, well, you know, your product does have opinions. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not just lumps of coal or Brussels mm-hmm. sprouts or whatever, you know. Yeah. Brussels sprouts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's quite, they had to, they found it very difficult to deal with, with, uh, with, with creative artists. Didn't they? they did, because the music industry, uh, its blessing and its curse is that it's just a wonderfully confused mass. And from that springs creativity on the kind of, on the corporate level and the company level and also on the, on the artist level. And it doesn't apply to normal rules of business. And this was a thing that obviously Terra Firma had come in. Their big success was this German service giant called Tank and Rast. They turned around. So they went in. They went, okay, people don't stop there because there's a perception the toilets are dirty and you can't get good food there. We'll clean up the toilets. We'll put in good food. People will stop. And it worked. And they, they'd figured out what the problem was. It's what kind of... Uh, management consultants would call a turnkey solution, which is you yeah. go in, you find the one thing that's wrong with it, and you sort it, and that's it. But the problem with uh, EMI and the, the entire music industry, and EMI was not alone in this, was that everything was in freefall. Everything, all the rule books were being ripped up. Everything was completely uncertain. No one knew what the future was. And you can go into that and apply straight business logic to a business that is inherently illogical. And, that, and from that springs some incredible art. And also, and we've listed all the great artists on EMI, but EMI also signed a huge amount of terrible bands as well, as did every other record yeah, label, yeah. as do independents, because it's a spread bat. The whole thing's a spread bat. Go yeah. on, explain that more. Well, basically, you just don't know what's going to be successful. You could go in and you walk into uh, the Dublin Castle and the third band on the bill, you go, oh, I like them. I think they could be... They, they, they've got good tunes. But then there's all those other things around it. Do, do they have enough good tunes? Can they play live? Or are they nice people? Will they do the grip and grin and do all the promo stuff? And all of those other things, it's just... It's one little moment, but they have to kind of enable all of these other things. So it's a domino effect, and you just don't know. You don't know, like, two bands playing on, on the same night, on the same bill. One of them is going to be Radiohead, and one of them is going to be Joe Blow and the No Hopers, or whatever. But didn't Guy Hands come in and, and say, right, we're not going to sign any more bands? 
for the time being. Isn't that well, right? Because well, he, 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 well, he they're, they're worried about the amount of money that they were losing on the ones that weren't making any any profit. They were. There, there, will, there, there was an element of uh, they wanted to reduce the budgets on what they signed orders for. And obviously, if you're a manager and you've got an artist that... Because EMI wouldn't just discover a band without everybody else knowing about that band. There's the great A&R rap run, and everybody knows about bands and they're all tasting those bands. So if EMI's not going to go and compete uh, with the same advances that a Universal or a Warner or a Sony's going to have, or even a big independent like a Domino or a, or a Beggar's Group... Uh, they're gonna if they can't meet what everybody else is doing. Like, why would a not sign to them if they're going to be cutting corners? Then it was also exacerbated by the fact that they'd been bought over by this private equity company. So it was a great unknown. So lots of managers were just going, "Well, why would we sign? Are you going to be around next year?" Yeah, yeah. Because the terrible thing that lots of bands find is when they sign to a label, the A and R brings them in, or the head of the label really likes them. And then they go off and they record the album. And possibly in that time, the head of the label's kicked out or yeah. moved to another label. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or the A&R gets sacked. It's just like the publishing business. Yeah. yeah. And nobody wants to be... That's someone else's band or that's someone else's act. So nobody yeah. else at the label wants to take them all the way through. So they, they fall through the cracks. So manager was just going, well, what happens if you fall apart and, and you get carved up? What happens? My label in that, or my artist in that, twelve months from us sewing into them getting their album out. They just thought that was too high risk. So for the first couple of years, nobody would sign with them. They just couldn't. They kind of had well. They pox. kind of thought of them as being toxic, didn't they? Yeah. I mean, well, well, and all these didn't... business stories started appearing in the business papers, but they were illustrated by pictures of Robbie Williams and Carly Minogue, which couldn't have been good for the you know the, the profile of yeah, the company. Yeah. But also, the rest of the majors were having a field day. They were just going one less person in the weaving a, a checkbook. Yeah, right. so we can get these people for a bit less, or there's less competition. So, so what were the kind of so so Terra Firma, these you know successful VC, they they borrow well, they, they were the private equity rather okay, than VC. They were very equity. very distinct about that. They borrow an enormous amount of money from yeah. Citibank. They borrowed two points. They they bought EMI for four point two billion, and they borrowed two point six billion of that from Citigroup. And they borrowed it in what year? In uh, they had a verbal agreement in May 2007. Okay, well, even somebody who's as hazy as myself on financial places <laughs> knows that something happened in 2008. <laughs> that means so, if you'd bought a house in 2007, you were in a pretty bad shape a year yeah, later. Yeah, basically the horse fell out of everything. Right. That, that's, <laughs> that, that, that's the economic term. So the, the, Baffle the, us with science. Yeah, the business <laughs> is going backwards anyway yeah. in the face of digital challenges and file sharing and so forth. Yeah. Then you pay through the the nose for something, and then the arse falls out of it. Yeah. Nose, arse, <laughs> Yeah. They're all, all, all over Nose the to arse, that's a new restaurant yeah. concept, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, on top nose of to that, tally-tally. they have... I get the impression from your book that they have a kind of charm deficit in the terra firma uh, organisation, that, you know, a genius, a kind of, I don't know, a, a, whether a Bill Gates or whatever is the right kind of person... Somebody who can win hearts and minds. They don't have anybody like that, do they? No. I think the problem was that they put in people who... Uh, well, they, well, they pushed out a lot of people who knew how to speak to these artists because the great record company people on that will go from Jack Holzman to David Gaffin to Martin Mills or Daniel Miller or Lawrence Bell or all these great people. They understand art and business and yep. they understand the, how they intermesh. And uh, Terra Firma understood business. They didn't understand art. So it took them a long time to figure out how, that there were people in the business who could sit down and sit and look at a P&L sheet or work out budgets for the year, but also could sit down and have a chat with Demon Albarn about whatever or Kate Bush and talk to them about music and about art and what's kind of happening in music. And they didn't have those people. But they immediately they immediately just got off on the wrong foot, didn't they? Because Robbie Williams' manager was going around describing Guy Hands, who's in the centre of this picture here that we're looking at, as being a, a plantation owner. Legal, no. legal disclaimer, he said that Guy Hands is at risk of behaving like a plantation a owner. Behaving. OK, yeah. OK. Because right. uh, Guy Hands was going to sue him. Yeah. He, he filed a legal letter and said, I'm going to sue you, which is not a really... 
that's not a good way to start uh, managing a business. Managing your Take, biggest artist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm going to see Day the manager one. of oh, the yeah. biggest no. uh, but, uh, but solo uh, artist on the There's another fascinating bit when you talk about Terra Firma trying to suggest ways that they can make more money out of the acts they've got. There's a, there's yeah. a, a point about uh, opening a Rolling Stones hotel. Yeah. I think there's a, they're trying to get the, the idea of gorillas music to sell hair products. No, they were, they Is wanted, that right? They, no, I mean, they wanted to do uh, a brand endorsement. They'd get gorillas to endorse Lynx Africa body spray. <laughs> I'd love to have been at that meeting. Yeah, Guy, Guy Hans also said that he'd spoken to uh, Coldplay about making uh, electric toothbrushes that would play yellow as you brushed your teeth. That's which right. Is, yeah. And get now, their records on sale defense, in, yeah. in his defence, I've spoken to Kimberly Rue, who wrote Walking on Sunshine, and he had a toothbrush that played Walking <laughs> on Sunshine, which he got paid handsomely I, for. I'm, I'm yeah. sure he did. I'm wondering if, if uh, precious Chris Martin would have... Uh, <laughs> no. Yeah. No, but it's... Yeah, it, yeah. It is quite interesting. You know, get, Not for it, certain artists. Those it, kind of things work. Yeah, absolutely. But you have to, and, but you have to and, pick and the, the right artists. You know, that. the record business used to have a simple business, which is we sell a load of LPs and then CDs for £12, £13. Our margin is this, you yeah. know. We sell that many. And it's not like that anymore, is it? You, no. you, you're, you're renting noughts and ones, or you're, you're looking for other ways to make money. And when you first suggest any of them, they all sound ludicrous. Yeah. And then the odd one might take. Yeah. But, but by then, you've, you've lost your credit because you're talking to creative artists who are actually, oddly enough, not very imaginative. <laughs> they have a very limited way of looking at the, the things they'll do until they see somebody else start to do it. Then they think, oh, I'd like that as well. Well, I had that story about the Beatles would only uh, consider any kind of business proposition, or Apple Corp after the Beatles had split up, they'd only consider any business proposition after they'd been asked about it for the sixth time. Right. So why is your music not on, <laughs> on CD? Why is your music not on iTunes? Why is your music not on Spotify? Because they were getting ridiculous propositions every day. But if somebody kept coming back... Uh, then it was a proof. They would eventually thing. crack. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not, did, not that they wouldn't. But not there, that are, they would there crack. are. They would just there go, what, is, Neil, is there a future in this? Neil Tennant told me that whenever they were approached by anything, by EMI, that they didn't know what to do about it, they would always answer the same, what are the Beatles doing? Yeah. And if the Beatles have eventually decided to do it, we'll think about it. Yeah. You know? Obviously, not on the same terms that the Beatles No, are. not quite. But, you know, but what? people are quite cautious, aren't they? They don't, oh, want no, to, they don't want to be the first one out there. Oh, completely. Nobody wants to kind of uh, song in the worst deal. Yeah. Like yeah. Willis Bryan Epstein did with those merchandise deals with the, the Beatles yeah, yeah. in the 60s. Terrible deals. Yeah. yeah. But what, about the, what about the Abbey Road deal? Because there's a bit where they talk about wanting to turn Abbey Road into a hotel, and then at one point, I think, putting in mirrors so you could go in there and watch acts recording. They had various different ideas imagine? for Abbey Road. So one of them was they wanted to turn it into a visitor centre, and immediately people were going, this is a working studio, yeah. having people... Trips and around. No, but there's no parking anywhere yeah, yeah, near there. Yeah, <laughs> go on. Very practical. Seriously, yeah. that's the first thing Graceland did in Memphis yeah, yeah. was buy up all the businesses opposite so yeah. you could park. Yeah, yeah you don't want yeah. somebody, yeah, somebody in, in recording there. and people knocking at the door going, "Where is Beatles Band?" <laughs> or like that. And well, one of the other things they said they wanted to put in two-way mirrors so the people could stand and watch people recording albums if anybody has ever had the great fortune to be in a recording studio it's incredibly boring people yeah, sit yeah. it's a lot of sitting around hours of people yeah, getting yeah. drum sounds yeah, yeah yeah it's rubbish so they thought that was an idea another idea they had was that they were going to put out a Robbie Williams album put in a golden ticket and if someone won the golden ticket Robbie Williams would pick them up in a helicopter. In a helicopter, would, that's right. They would land in Lord's Cricket Ground and he would take them by limo to Abbey Road and give them a big uh, a tour of Abbey Road and a meet and greet and all of that sort of stuff. And they went, oh, that's quite good. And then they realised that nobody would spoken to Robbie Williams' managers about this. And they went, yeah, they'll probably tell you to fuck off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, like, they were, like, it was basically some of the market meetings. Somebody beautifully described it as they, they would see people coming out of these market meetings and they were squeaking because they couldn't believe what was being proposed and that. But I think my favourite story, which everybody at Terra Firma I spoke to denied this ever happened, but for some reason, somebody tabled the idea that they wanted to... They were talking about Meltdown and who was going to curate Meltdown. And someone, and people deny this and other people swear this actually happened, one of the people they put forward to curate Meltdown was going to be Bob Marley. 
Russian film. No, no, no. That's so. I think some of the some of the intensely damaging to your credibility. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't. I, I think he probably would have cost too much. <laughs> there was also the issue that I mean, a lot of these guys were uh, you know they come from transforming a German motorway operation. Yeah, and and suddenly they're sniffing stardust, aren't they? They're they're absolutely starstruck. I think some people, yeah, because it is a quite a seductive industry when you go in there that suddenly you go, my God, you can get CDs or you can go to gigs or you, you might see a pop star in the lobby and stuff. And for most people who work in labels, they've probably known these pop stars since they were nobodies, so it's not like yeah. remotely exciting that yeah. kind of, oh, suddenly... Uh, Demon Olborn's there, like they knew him when they couldn't attract five people to the Bulling Gear on a Wednesday night. So they've kind of grown up with these people and they're seeing them all the time. But when you're dropped into that world, suddenly it's incredibly glamorous. I think most people would kind of uh, be seduced by that. And so, so Guy Hans has a meeting with Mick Jagger, doesn't he? He that? does, yeah. Right. And how does that, uh, go? that because the through Virgin, they had the Stones catalogue post. 1971, so he was up for renewal, and obviously this, the catalogue takes over, but nobody least of all, well, I think the only people who want a new Rolling Stones record are the Rolling Stones, yep. and probably yeah. even half of them won't listen to it again. Yeah. Yeah. It's and, true. And, and it's a vanity thing for them, because yeah, going back really. to that point, about it's the label the Stones are on, that yeah. means something, but it allows the Stones to go off and tour and Mick Jagger to play one new song so that he's vibrant and young and cool and relevant and stuff. And if you don't put out a new album, then yeah. you're a nostalgia act, yeah. aren't you? Yeah. But basically, nobody wants to go and see the Stones. If the Stones say, here's, some, here's a song that we wrote in 1980, people would just walk out. They go like, yeah. probably 1975 is probably the cut-off point, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Start nothing me, after, nothing start, after... Start me up, yeah. and then, yeah. then yeah. you're done. That's yeah, it. nothing That's after it. that. Yeah. Uh, so, Guy Hans had a meeting with Mick Jagger and this is where he tabled this idea of the, the Stones Hotel that they were going to have a pre-trashed room that... Oh, pre oh, And they were going to do... God, yeah, yeah, no! Yeah. And, oh, no! Imagine, yeah. imagine the withering look. <laughs> oh, that's just, fantastic. Just imagine that. And what else? The Stones Idol, so it was... They were going to get Mick and Keith to be judges to find a Stones cover band. That's, I right, think, that's right, a TV I think, show. I think Keith would have possibly seen the humour in it, but I don't think Mick Jagger elected him to have someone who's younger and more virile than him to kind of replace... I don't, I don't no, think, I can't no, say I don't that. think that would work. No, it wouldn't work. And there was various different ideas, and the story goes that they... Uh, Mick Jagger basically went out of the lunch meeting and went straight down to Universal and went, do you want our catalogue? <laughs> Guy Hans... Because they, Guy, they did move almost immediately after. Yeah. As uh, Guy, Queen, Guy, did Guy Hans said that he, he knew what they were asking, and they were in the bidding, and they bid to because just when you just don't make money, it's a vanity deal. And I know that they got pretty much the same deal from Universal, but then Universal did a massive reissue program. They put out Exile on Main, Main Street, it was a number one record, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, first number one in 16 years yeah, or something for the Stones. Right. And that's all Mick Jagger cares about. He got a number one. Yeah. He's brilliant. I'm vital. Yeah. I'm, I'm relevant again. And the Queen catalogue Queen catalog moved immediately? What? The, the, there's various... Just, issues about the Queen catalogue, about what happened there, but I believe that a deal had been struck at some point in the 80s that with every catalogue renegotiation, they would have got the masters back to one of their albums because this is a big issue that artists have with record labels is traditionally they're signed in perpetuity and the label owns the master recordings yeah, yeah, forever yeah. and the artists don't, they just get a percentage of the sales, so Various artists, and they've done these deals. They did it with Pink Floyd, so every new album you deliver, you get one of the catalogue ones back. And I think Queen had a reissue programme, which was, OK, it's up for another renewal, and you get the masters back. And that was d dealt with in the old EMI days. Just go, you've got to keep them happy. We keep them on the books. And the Queen catalogue was just a lovely earner for EMI. It just ticked over beautifully for them. And Terra Firma looked at the data and went, what, we're giving up rights? No, not doing it. And uh, then they went, back, went to Universal. So, like, the, all the, the kind of the big acts, Paul McCartney, the fact that, obviously, Radiohead went their own way. David Bowie effectively downed tools during the period who so didn't have to deal with it. So, at both times, they were, they were losing a lot of the kind of the crown jewels of the catalogue, uh, which were, were going to become incrementally more important in the streaming age, 
and they weren't signing any new acts. So this so is a really bad thing for a record company. So if you don't have catalogue and you're not investing in the catalogue of tomorrow, like a shark, you've got to keep moving or you're dead. So the kind of, the kind of truth of learning is that, is that the power in the music business actually belongs to a small number of acts rather uh, than the record companies. Possibly, possibly. I think, well, obviously, they, re- they are dependent on the record companies to make them that successful. So there's, I guess it goes from the kind of the, the, the servant to master. They flip. There's a, there, uh, there's a certain point where that relationship flips yeah. where the artist starts off completely dependent on the label and then there's a bit where they flip and they go, okay, the label is dependent on us. Yeah, and yeah. it's only it's a it's the it's the it's the one percent who do that. It's Radiohead, it's Coldplay, it's the Beatles that yeah. manage to achieve that sort of power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how did they? I mean, this, I just had to mention this in their floundering days, in their quite brief period of of running the business. Yeah, floundering around, they signed this woman. Yeah. Who is goes under the name of? Um, is it a modesty blaze or something? Immodesty, immodesty blaze. She's immodest- a burlesque dancer. She's a burlesque yeah. dancer. Who what were gets, they thinking of? Who gets a record? They were going. We're doing new things. We're experimenting, and right. nothing. I don't think anything ever came of that. Right. So, right. I don't know. I think at that point they were just going. Can we sign anything? Yeah, yeah. But then again, as we were saying earlier, I mean, the old method used to be just some scatter shot, and you never know that might just work, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it does seem a, a, a dancer signed to a record label does seem a peculiar, but you know, uh, you know, worth well, a try. It's, it's happened in the past. Yeah, yeah, it has. So yeah. Madonna. It, it, yeah. Well, absolutely. It, it eventually comes to a head with, it, it, as a conflict between Terra Firma and Citibank. Yeah. Because Citibank have lent them the money while also working for EMI. Mm-hmm. And Terra Firma are basically saying, you shouldn't have lent us all this money. Yeah. Because we overpaid for this thing and it's going backwards. But also they were struggling to meet the debt repayments. Yeah. So yeah. obviously you can, you can make savings in the first year by basically sacking everybody and dropping loads of bands. But when, when you cut it to the bone in the first year, where do you make the savings in the second year? You can't. Yeah. So they were really struggling. But also within this, Guy Hands was led to believe that they'd been hoodwinked, that there was a rival bidder for EMI that were there right until the deadline right. and that they were paying, they paid two sixty five a share. Just like an estate agent. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's got all the, all the hallmarks of buying a house in Jersey. It is, yeah. Uh, yeah. 2007. And another bidder was in the run and it was down to two and there's there's dispute. I can't get anybody to tell me exactly when they dropped out, but the deadline was the Monday morning. Some people say that the other uh, bidder dropped out on the Saturday. Some people say they dropped out the week before. And uh, But anyway, it, as it stands, uh, Terra Firma were the only bidders at that point. They claimed that they would have offered a lower price. EMI's board claimed that they wouldn't have accepted a much lower price. So anyway, there was a, there was a long court case where uh, Terra Firma took Citibank to court in New York. So it was a jury trial, and it went on for a long time. And who won? And uh, the judge ruled in favour of Citigroup. But because it was a very weird court case, because it was a judge applying English law in a New York court, and there was uh, uh, Terra Firma's lawyers felt that he'd misinterpreted bits of UK law, so they pushed for a retrial, and it took a long, long time. And then the retrial went to uh, the High Courts in London uh, several years later. So it was like long after Terra Firma had lost control of the company, and uh, so they were. It was going to be a judge trial as well, rather than a jury trial. And I think five days in, Guy Hans basically just walked away. He just said, right, OK, we're, we're abandoning the case. And it was a, a case of they then so had to admit, walked, to go, like, we, uh, we will no, not pursue any legal action. He walked away a sadder and a poorer man. Sorry? He walked away a sadder yeah, and yeah. a poorer well, he, man. Well, he, he'd, he'd put in a good chunk of his own personal fortune into that. But obviously, he had... He borrowed £2.6 billion, so, ter- uh, so they'd already paid off the debt... 
were paying interest in the debt and whatever, and then Citigroup took what was left of EMI, and then they just carved it up and sold it off and made their money so back. So where is EMI now? Well, most of EMI recorded went to Universal, right. with the exception of the Parlophone label, which is now part of Warner. But then, for for Warner to buy Parlophone and for Universal to absorb most of EMI, they had to do what's called divestment. So they had to kind of sell off yeah. assets. So that was all either they had to close offices or they had to sell off catalogs. It got to the point where they were selling off albums. So there was a guy, uh, John Kennedy, who was actually the lawyer for Live Aid, was overseeing this divestment process. And it was getting down to the point of, all right, I'll trade you a Joe Blow album for this or whatever. (laughs) And that was it. And they had to get it just so they could get through with kind of market share and just... Well, it's selling old them. copies of Seven and the Ragged Tiger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was probably worth, that was probably worth something. But, like, <laughs> various independents then had, had stepped forward to buy up right. parts of the catalogue, but it was, they were just buying, like, like one artist's back catalogue. That was it. So it was, it, was, it was that granular. So what is an extraordinary story... Uh, all told in this fascinating book. I, I have some copies for sale at the back if you want. Yeah, cool. Cash only. Yeah. Yes. No copies of Seven and the Ragged Tiger <laughs> taken. What, what was the most surprising thing you learnt in the course of it? Oh, my God. That I don't like transcribing. No. Uh, <laughs> I think... Nobody likes transcribing. I think that people felt, certainly people at EMI felt that Terra Firma came in with bad intentions, that they were just going to asset strip the company, and they weren't, and I think, I genuinely think that Terra Firma were in there for the long haul, and were in there for the good. They went in a kind of ham-fisted at the start, because they just didn't understand, possibly in a panic of taking out this massive loan, and having to start to, to get to, to repay it. There's a, there's a figure quoted. There was a, one guy, and I know we've talked about all the terra firma executives that got people's backs up. There was one guy called David Kastler who came in that everybody at EMI genuinely liked. And his argument, or his line was, when I, ever I come into a new company to help restructure it, I spend the first six months sitting at the back listening. And the problem was that nobody else at terra firma were listening. They were just kind of dictating. Yeah, yeah. And that was the problem. But I think David Kastler told me, he said that the average wait time for a private equity firm in a in a restructuring of companies about three, three and a half years and Terra Firma spent seven years on their restructuring and they were going to spend seven years on AMI. I saw their forecast plans that they were kicking around in 2007 when they were buying AMI and they'd said that this is a seven year recovery plan by 2014 the global record industry will start to recover and they were absolutely right. They were completely spot on with that. So they had the right intention. They just went about it the wrong way. And then they just panicked. And the whole thing was just like a catalogue of really, really bad timing. It was like it was like kind of Keystone Cops in a way. Like it was just like Pratt falling everywhere. Well, it's all in here. Keystone Cops, the Beatles. Yeah, the Keystone Cop, um, my favourite band. And, and all your favourites. Extraordinary stories about the, uh, you know... The, the so-called halcyon days of the music business, and the you know, yeah, there's been a, there's a lot of loose talk about every other industry thinks they could have done it better, they could have dealt with it better. I don't think they necessarily no, they all, could. They all made oh, like you talk about every mistake imaginable. Like the music industry was the first through the ringer yeah. for yeah, digital, yeah. and the the newspaper industry made yeah, the same mistakes. Yeah, the big yeah. industry, the film industry, the TV industry, they all made the yeah. same mistakes. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a real twenty first century business story. I mean, it's so typical, isn't it, of what was going on in so many other industries. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Eamon Ford. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.